Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I will be reading from Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. It is on page 1060 in your pew Bible. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Thank you, Elsa. The word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated, except for my 10 volunteers. All right. All right, we've got the 10 volunteers here. We're going to play a little game of would you rather. Does everyone know what would you rather is? Like, I ask a question, would you rather eat worms or cockroaches, right? And you, you have to choose one of those two. I create crazy binary options that you would never probably choose. Okay, so what we're going to do is, would you rather, would you rather have Mallard's ice cream, you will go over here if you'd rather have Mallard's ice cream, or all-you-can-eat menchies. Okay. Tor likes the menchies. Because you can build your own, yeah. There you go, okay, okay. Would you rather have a dog or a cat? Dogs over here, cats over here. Okay, okay. Seen the theme, there's only, there's only three. Oh, Clover, you're going to the cat side? Would you rather go bunny in the middle? You can do that. Okay, okay. Would you rather <laughs> would you rather speak or perform in front of a large group of people or go to the dentist? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm going to tell Corey. Yeah, she's down the nurse. I yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Would you rather have dinner with Darth Vader or Obi-Wan Kenobi? No, I can't. That's a precarious proposition. Oh, you can. Jonathan says Darth Vader can't eat, so he can have his portion. Does he go intervenous or what? Okay. All right, let's give them a hand. Go ahead and find your spots. We are the church, one body of one Lord, through one baptism, by one Spirit, with one Father, who is over all and in all and through all. We are one in the essentials, and yet we have a wide variety of opinions and personalities and likes and dislikes. Our little game 
of would you rather kept our diversity at a pretty surface level, didn't it? But our differences go a little bit deeper than our dessert tastes and our affinity towards specific sci-fi characters. In this local church, I'm sure we have differences of opinion about what the best kind of worship music is. Or we differ in opinion, when we we really push it, what's our favorite Bible translation? Or what's the best tasting gluten-free communion bread available to us out there? And if you're siding with the garlic stuff, you're wrong. It's never the garlic. (laughs) We ex- if we expand this diversity over all the church around the world, across denominations and cultures and geolocations, the diversity gets even more pronounced. Styles of worship range from deeply contemplative to free-flowing and unpredictable. Sermons range from homilies of 10 minutes to maybe neo-reformed sermons over an hour long full of doctrine to uh, some of our brothers and sisters in two-thirds world countries and Pentecostal settings where they range from two to three hours and you never know when it's going to end. Now, I assure you that while I regret to inform you, this sermon won't just be a 10-minute homily. I can guarantee you, unless the Lord speaks to me right now or throughout this, it won't be over an hour, so you can rest easy. Now, my point is that the church remains one despite many differences in style and language and form. One of the most diverse churches in the Bible is most likely the church in first century Corinth. It's in the southern part of Greece, and here's how diverse this church was. It's in Greece, but it's a Roman colony. That in itself is weird. Um, It's known for uh, being at the the Isthmus of Corinth, where uh, trade would go right across this from the Ionian Sea to the Aegean Sea. Merchants, laborers, sailors, and soldiers, rich and poor, Romans and Greeks and Turks and Syrians and Jews and Egyptian people from all over the world would come to this place, and they would bring their money, and they would bring their culture and their food and their religion and their worldview. The church in Corinth was likely made up of a hodgepodge of these types of people. It was multicultural, multi-ethnic. And you could assume that the Apostle Paul, if he were to open up one of his sermons in Corinth with a, with, with a game of would you rather, he would get plenty of different types of diverse answers. Which language should we speak in church in Corinth? Greek? Latin? Aramaic? Coptic? Probably there's people that would have voted for all of those things. What songs should we sing? Old Jewish hymns, of course. Well, wait a minute. Some of these Greek poets have written some great hymns. We could put Christian words to them. You see what I'm saying? It could be this diverse thing. How, how should we dress? What type of building should we use for worship inside, outside? What type of day should we worship? You can tell a lot about what was important to Paul by what opinions and divisions he chose to address in his letters to, these, to the churches. What you don't see Paul writing about is the types of songs that people sing or what kind of wine is served at communion or what um, time of day they should meet for worship. You don't see him writing about those things. But there was one issue that absolutely was not up for grabs for Paul, and it's the issue, or rather the event, of Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. From the uh, transformation of the original disciples to those of us who follow Jesus to this day, the resurrection of Jesus is the central event that we believe changed the world. And somehow, some people in the Corinthian church were denying that, that they had hope in Christ's resurrection. 
Those who had already put their faith in Jesus were doubting that they and others would one day be raised from the dead, like, it, like Jesus was on the very first Easter. And here's what Paul has to say to those folks. Would you stand with me, please, as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom, if he did not raise, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's fancy for dead, in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are in Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, which he has ab- uh, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he's put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected, accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who put all things under him, so that God may be all and in all. Lord, bless you for this word preserved and passed down to us over the centuries. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate it for us, speak to us a fresh word, and print it in our hearts and in our minds. Amen. You may be seated. There are some things absolutely essential to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These things are evident in the scriptures, passed down through tradition, and transcend opinion. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is one of these non-negotiables of the faith. Now, it's important to say at the outset that Paul was not a traditionalist. And what I mean by that is that Paul was not one to make people jump through unnecessary hoops to be part of the church. He wasn't one to put form above function. In fact, Paul was an innovator. He was always asking the question, what walls stand between people and Jesus, and how, according to the scriptures, of course, can we break down these walls that separate us? Paul was an innovator of bringing non-Jews into fellowship with Christianity, a movement that had Jewish roots. He was an innovator in breaking down cultural walls between men and women and slaves and free Jews and Gentiles, those of great wealth and those of very uh, low and common descent. 
I say all of this because for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was not just some doctrine that people were free to take or leave. If it was, he would say, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Just come to Jesus. The resurrection for Paul wasn't just an answer to a question in a Sunday school class. For Paul and for the church from the very beginning, the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Keep in mind that this passage that we're discussing tonight has nothing to do with proving the resurrection. There are lots of very good, rational, and logical reasons for believing Jesus rose, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's writing to people who had already at one point believed, but now they're going back on their first held beliefs. So he gives them two great reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to our faith. The first reason is a negative reason. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we're in a world of hurt. The second reason is positive. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, there is a great reversal in store for the world. Now, In a game of would you rather, would you rather have the good news first or the bad news first? I always pick the bad news first. But Paul picks the bad news first too, so let's just follow him because it's his letter. So let's go with that. The Corinthians were not necessarily doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. The problem was with the belief that those who are in Christ, his followers, through uh, faith and through baptism, would one day be resurrected in a new body. The problem, says Paul, is that the resurrection of the dead through faith in Jesus is a central part of the message of Jesus himself. If the dead can't be raised, then Jesus couldn't be raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we're all still dead in our sins. First of all, Paul argues, listen, you guys, Corinthian church, you all became followers of Jesus through the message that I preached to you about Jesus, the Messiah, being crucified and then rising from the dead. You became his disciples based on that very message that he was raised from the dead. If you no longer believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe in the message in which you had faith. So you're in serious trouble. You've got a crisis of faith. If Jesus died but didn't raise from the grave, then you and I are still stuck in our sin. We're stuck in sin's consequences, which is death. The only reason Jesus' death on our behalf is salvation is because Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death. Think of it this way. Kenneth Bailey, a New Testament scholar, writes, Why did the church at this early age in its existence conclude that the the, the death of Jesus was different than the death of John the Baptist? The death of John uh, included the following details. A proclaimer of the gospel made powerful enemies because of his message. That's true for John the Baptist. Herod did not like his message. It was true for Jesus. The Pharisees and Pilate did not like his message. That gospel proclaimer was unjustly imprisoned. John the Baptist confronted Herod about his incestuous relationship. He got imprisoned. Jesus said things like, I'll tear this temple down and three days build it up, and that ticked people off, and he was arrested unjustly. A ruler admired the prisoner, but was too weak to act on his scruples. Herod actually kind of liked John the Baptist. He thought a lot of what he said was intriguing and possibly true, 
but he was too weak to act on those scruples. Pilate was troubled in his soul about Jesus. There was something about this man. Remember when he asks, where do you come from? But he was not strong enough to act on those scruples. That ruler acted to protect his own interests and ignored the demands of justice. Herod agonized at the final decision to have John the Baptist beheaded, but he was too weak. He protected his own self-interest. Pilate, the same thing. He knew Jesus was innocent, but the roar of the crowds convinced him. The wife of that ruler was involved. In John the Baptist's case, Herod's wife was the one who, like, talked her daughter into asking dad to chop John's head off. In the other one, Pilate's wife has a dream from God, and she says, leave this man alone. She says to her husband, I had a dream. Don't touch this one. Leave him alone. So the wives are involved in this. Jewish law and the keeping of that law were at issue in both cases. An innocent man was murdered. Justice was violated in the case of John the Baptist and in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. The ruler ordered the murder to please someone else. Herod didn't really want to do it, but he had made a promise in public. He was under pressure. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but there's the pressure of the crowds. And in the end, Pilate's job security was, was based in keeping peace for Rome. Soldiers carried out the dirty work. The ruler makes the execution remark. The soldiers actually do it in both cases. This is true. And disciples of both victims, John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth, took the, vic- the victim's body and put it in a tomb. All of these features are present in John's, uh, the Baptist life and death, and in Jesus's life and death. But no one ever claimed to see John the Baptist after he died. In fact, after Herod had John executed and Jesus comes into his own ministry and is doing all these amazing things, Herod wondered, is that John the Baptist resurrected or reappearing? But he wasn't. You know, John the Baptist had a few disciples who carried on his teachings for several years after he died, but no one ever thought he was still alive. They just carried on his teachings like people do with Buddha or other people who have obviously died but carry on the philosophy or the teachings. Jesus, on the other hand, appeared to his disciples after the cross, and that made all the difference. Again, quoting from Kenneth Bailey, the fact of the resurrection brought unmistakable victory over sin and death. Their studied conclusion as the church was that Christ died for our sins, and because he rose That death was effective. Our sins are forgiven. The reason people believe that Jesus rose and continue to believe is not because they wanted it to be so, not because it was even expected, not because it made any kind of sense. It's like the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. They believed and we believe because it happened. People saw him. People touched him. People talked with him. And people have been drawn to him and are drawn to him. In fact, maybe you find yourself drawn to him because he lives. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we are all dead in our sins and our faith is void. And if we make sacrifices in Jesus' name for his sake, if we do a bunch of good things thinking that we're following Jesus and he didn't raise from the dead, we are fools to be pitied. 
Because if he didn't raise from the dead, it really is survival of the fittest, look out for number one. This is stupid what we're doing here right now. And this get up just got a whole lot more ridiculous. But thanks be to God, Christ has been raised from the dead. Show me some life. Amen? Okay. And now we see Paul launch into the second part of his argument, the positive part. See, don't you like the bad stuff first? I like the positive. Jesus' death and resurrection absolutely changes the outcome of history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon and the day and the night and the rivers and the mountains, oceans and valleys, plants and animals, and he made people in his own image. To the letter to the Colossian church, we learn that Jesus was the agent of creation, that all things were created through him and for him. And the first person was Adam. Literally, that word Adam means earth man. He was created out of the clay, the hummus, which is where we get the word human, hummus, from the earth, from the clay. He and his equal partner Eve shared unbroken relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, and all was well with the world for an unspecified time. But when our ancestors broke that relationship with God, a horrible chain of events took place that infected the created order like a virus, fear and doubt and prejudice and anger and selfishness and pain and death. These became part of the human experience, of the animal experience, of the plant world experience. And I don't know enough about geology, but things shake and blow up a lot, don't they? So let's say that too. All of creation would suffer the consequences of Adam. And so the world was set on this crash course to destruction. And we've seen it play out in history time and time again. Most recently, actually, in this sermon I have most recently in Belgium, but now even more recently in Pakistan last night or this morning for us, a group of people uh, were bombed. Uh, Speculation is they were Christian worshipers going out for Easter morning. Our fears and insecurity aligned with our greed and our lust for comfort create a political vacuum where dictators and terrorist groups and corporations and some of our most outrageous presidential candidates emerge to offer us salvation. And you wonder, how can these people be taken seriously? Where do they come from? I think they're caricatures of the ugliness that is actually in in my heart. And sorry to say it, in your heart as well. Those dark spots, they're just magnifications, caricatures, ugly ones. And without help from outside of ourselves, we're absolutely lost. And yet, since humanity is at fault, we need a human to help us. What are we to do? What are we to do? That's absolutely a valiant question, but it's misguided, at least theologically. I think the question is, what has been done? What has been done? And the answer is amazing. A great reversal has been initiated in the birth and in the death and in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus. Paul says, For since a man came, or since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All things were created in and through Jesus, including Adam. All things were cursed because of the sin of Adam. 
But when Jesus, the creator, became flesh on Christmas morning, the created order rejoiced and the creation participated with this rescue plan. Planets aligned themselves. The great star altered its course. And as Jesus grew into his ministry, the creation responded and participated. He called, he calmed storms on the sea with a word. He changed H2O molecules into wine, a substance that doesn't even, it has more molecules than H2O. It's amazing. People's ailments were healed by a touch. Dead people were brought back to life. Jesus was showing in his ministry what it means to be fully human as we were meant to be. And when Jesus died, taking on the sin of the world, the creation participated. Humans participated by putting him to death. The earth quaked and trembled. The sun, which for many pagan cultures over most of history is one of the highest deified celestial bodies in in existence, was refused to shine in the strength of its power at midday. The sun participated. The day Jesus died, the graves gave up their dead outside of Jerusalem, says Matthew's gospel. Something of cosmic proportions happened. The creation was responding to the death of the creator, sending a message. And Paul Tillich suggests that this is the message, that earthly things are not as firm and secure as we think they appear. So don't build your homes and your cities and your societies and your hopes and your dreams on the things of earth. Notice I'm not saying on earth. God made the earth. He loves it. Christianity is an earthly religion. What I'm saying is of earth, like worldly, when I say that, earthly. And that means human society organized around anything but God. That's what earthly means. When the earth participates by shaking and stopping up the the sun and, and the graves allowing dead people to come out when Jesus is crucified, it's saying you've built your hopes on the wrong things. The one you should build your hopes on is the one you just put on a cross. The earth in which you bury your dead is not the final place for those who are dead in Christ. And this is why Paul writes to the Romans that all creation is groaning and longing for us to receive our resurrection bodies in Christ. All of creation is awaiting the great reversal, the great undoing of sin and death. The first human, Adam, got us into this mess, and we do our part to carry out the family tradition. But God became man that he might undo what Adam has done. Melito of Sardis was a second century bishop who wrote a powerful sermon, actually for Holy Saturday. Well, you wrote a lot of sermons, but the one I'm going to quote is from Holy Saturday. That's the Saturday that was yesterday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Here's a portion of it. Something strange is happening There's a great silence on earth today, a great stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He's gone to search for our first parent, as for a lost sheep, greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow the captives, Adam and Eve. 
He who is both God and the son of Eve. The Lord approached them bearing the cross, the victory weapon by which he has won. And at the sight of him, Adam, the first man he had created, struck his breast and cried out to everyone, My Lord be with you all. And Christ answered him and said, With your spirit. And he took him by the hand and raised him up and said, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you life. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. That is a beautiful line. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son, put on flesh, become, became a son of Adam. Out of love for you and your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are in bondage, come forth, and all who are in darkness, be enlightened, and all who are sleeping, arise. I order you, O sleeper, awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands. You who were created in my image, rise. Let us leave this place, for you are in me, and I am in you. Sometimes you run into a preacher who just does it better. That was so good. Melito of Sardis. For the next two weeks, you and I are going to be journeying in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, and specifically, we'll be addressing the topics of what does hope in the resurrection actually mean day-to-day, ethically? And what is the nature of resurrection? Like, what's it sort of going to be like? Do we know anything about resurrected bodies? But for today, on Easter, rooted in the text before us, it's enough to say that in Christ, the great reversal is in motion. Notice I didn't just say a reversal is in motion. The message is not this. We screwed things up. Jesus rescues us so that we can be reversed and go back to some Eden of sorts. What Scripture tells us is that because Jesus rose from the dead, there is going to be a great reversal. In Christ, we are better off than we started. Adam brought death, but those who are in Christ have new life. Watchman Nee used this simple example of a magazine and a dollar bill. Adam is a magazine, you are the dollar bill. If you put the dollar bill in the magazine, close it up, throw it on the fire, you are in Adam, you are in the flame. Likewise, for those of us who are in Christ, Christ is the magazine, we are the dollar bill. Close it up, put it on the fire. We are in Christ. What happened to Christ happens to us. Christ was dead we go under these waters, symbolically dying with Christ. We come out of the waters in our baptism, breathing that first breath, new life. We are identified with Christ, died with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And because Christ, our Lord, whom we are identified with, the dollar in the magazine, because he rose from the grave, you and I will rise from the grave if we are in Christ to resurrection life. All this brokenness, bombings, and politics, the disease of the body, the disease of broken relationships, all the hatred and the injustice, all of it will be undone by the great reversal. And death itself cannot stop what's happening because Jesus rose on Easter. And one day, he's promised to bring us into that new existence. And that's why today we can go out with joy. 
Lord Jesus, bless you, praise you for conquering the grave. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be found in Christ, to place our faith in Him, to believe deep in our bones in such a way that we have hope in the midst of so much to despair about. Help us not only to have hope for ourselves, but as your church, help us to have hope for our communities, for the loved ones in our lives who are suffering, for our world that is suffering daily. May our hope propel us to make a difference recognizing that nothing is lost in Christ, that no sacrifice is lost in you because you will bring it all to glorious fruition. Bless you, risen and reigning Lord. Amen.